Willa Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WBLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive. Our stories today are titled Bicultural in a Deaf Home and Living with Mental Illness. And we have a very special guest with us today, Carmen Vincent. Hello. (laughs) So excited to have you with us. Thanks. Excited to be here. Carmen is a Welcome Project volunteer. She is a documentary filmmaker. Um, and would you just like to tell us like what you've been up to lately? Yeah, yeah. So I graduated from Valparaiso University in May of 2020 and pivoted really quickly to the freelance world just because of the state of everything. Um, became my own boss. It was awesome. And now I do a lot of freelance editing for local nonprofits. Um, I've been doing gigs for Valparaiso University. Uh, just try to like have impact in our local community with my skills and I've also been uh, documentary filmmaking gosh for the past like three or four years and right now I'm working on a documentary about uh, Hebron Indiana families advocacy for Down syndrome education for first responders um, so that's that's currently what I'm working on and I also got to intern for the welcome project back in 2019 and got to create or help create one of the pieces that we're listening to today so I'm really excited about that yeah it'll be fun to have one of the makers <laughs> of the story on so some of our conversation might actually include like what it feels like to have edited somebody's story and yeah. I mean you'll have you have lots of experience with that of course but do you want to just tell us a little bit more about um, the specific documentary that you were working on and you recently took a trip to Indy that was in part to like you were taping again what it was like to have the first responders learn about the story. Yep. Yeah. So the documentary is called Teacher of Patience and people can watch a sample of it and learn more about it at teacherofpatience.com. But it's about um, Tom, Tina, and Emily. Tom is the father, a paramedic. Uh, Tina is a labor and delivery nurse, the mother. And then Emily is their 25-year-old daughter who happens to have Down syndrome. And they created something called the Emily Talk uh, a few years ago, and it's a presentation they do for first responders around Indiana and around the country, really, uh, to teach them about how to interact with individuals with Down syndrome, autism, and disability in general. And so this past weekend, we went down to Indianapolis to film um, them doing an Emily Talk for the Indianapolis EMS crew. and. It was my first time like directing a professional crew so that was really empowering (laughs) and scary but it went it went so great and we captured a lot of key moments and Emily she was awesome um, because I don't know she she's very unpredictable you don't know if she's gonna have a good day or a bad day Mm -hmm. just like the rest of us though yeah but the only difference is she has trouble communicating like when she's having a good day or a bad day so you never really know going into filming what you're gonna get and I think that's what's like so special about this film to me is that we can really show her authentic experience as it unfolds and like show just how much she's teaching other people um, and the the underlying lesson there is patience so that's why she's called the teacher of patience. It strikes me that um, Emily can't really sort of mask her vulnerability yeah you know in ways that others of us can if we're having a down day like we've sort of learned that socially we're supposed to not make that visible right (laughs) so um the fact that she will just be who she is you called it authenticity which is true I Mm -hmm. feel like that also means that her vulnerability is just front and center and that's also something I feel like we could learn how to do better oh yeah I mean Tom her dad says that she wears her disability on her face like looking at her you can tell she has down syndrome which comes with learning disabilities at at varying degrees and you know I think 
you know, the, it's a double-edged sword where, like, you can tell right away, but you're right, she can't hide it. Where, as I, I have invisible disabilities, so if you look at me, you can't tell there's anything going on. Um, so I get to choose whether I disclose that to you or not. Yeah. 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 And I feel like the stories that we're going to be talking about today all have to do with um, pretty invisible disabilities. I, I don't even know if disabilities is always the right word, but um, invisible uh, conditions that change maybe internally how we might be experiencing things if you're thinking about anxiety and depression or like an external condition, like a, a reality to external conditions if you're deaf. and people can't necessarily see that right away but Mm -hmm. then when they learn they start making all these sort of assumptions about what that means um so that might be a good segue to the first story yeah yeah so this first storyteller um this is titled bicultural in a deaf home and he talks about his experience growing up uh with his deaf mom i grew up with my mom um for most of my life she was a single mom and she's deaf and so, but she's the only deaf daughter of a hearing family. And so she has three siblings who are all hearing and both of her parents who can hear. I do consider myself bicultural, um, probably more bicultural than bilingual. A lot of times when I was little, I had to interpret for my mom between restaurant waiters and um, the grocery store. Every time we would go out to a restaurant, like, cause I could hear, but we're all signing usually, and you could hear people talking about like, what's wrong with that family? I wonder how they drive. I wonder how do they do anything? I wonder where they work. And my mom has her master's in education and she teaches, so, um, and I could hear them the whole time. So things like that would, they would happen a lot. She didn't want to force a difference. It was obvious enough already that she was deaf and we were hearing. She didn't want us to feel like she was forcing her deaf culture on us. One thing about deaf people that people assume a lot is they don't know how to read or write or that the old adage that deaf, dumb, and mute. Um, My mom can communicate well. I've met countless deaf people who they can communicate. It doesn't matter that they can't hear. It's not a disability to them. it's something to be proud of and so I think that's something everyone else can learn from is to be proud of who you are no matter what your weaknesses might be. Because I grew up in a bicultural home, for me when I move to a different culture it's easier because I just, I know my culture and I know what I grew up with and then being around people with different cultures is not like a shock for me and so maybe I don't notice it as much. I didn't grow up where everyone was the same. So I'm a very curious person. I'll always ask questions, and sometimes maybe it's dangerous, border's dangerous. I I just want to learn. I care about other people, so I want to know. And so for me, for me, it's just when I encounter something new, I just ask because I'm open about my culture experiences, and I want you to ask me because I want to talk about it. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you also. And then if it's silent, well, that's what I grew up with, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> People have always kind of assumed that I don't know anything about diversity and they always seem a little shocked when I'm like, yeah, like I know what it's like to grow up with a different experience and they're like, you don't get it. Like it's different, so don't talk about it because you you don't have the face or the, there's no way you have the experience. And so, and then when it's the like, actually like my mom's deaf, it's like, oh, I think anyone can talk to diversity because they, they grew up somewhere different than I did. They ha- grew up with different experiences than I did. You don't have to like have been oppressed in the same way to understand anger or sadness or rejection. You just have to know rejection, sadness, and anger. You don't have to have gone through it the same way. Hello, this is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and we're here today on Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with our guest, Carmen Vincent. And you just heard uh, a story from the Welcome Project Archive by Cultural in a Deaf Home. So um, this is a story from a staff member at the university who's talking about what it was like to grow up with a single mom who was, uh, uh, who was deaf. 
So, Willow, do you want to launch us off with a question today? Yeah, well, I was going to shoot it right on over to Carmen. Um, (laughs) So since this is one of the stories you brought to us, um, what stands out to you um, from this storyteller's experience? Oh, my gosh. There's so much to unpack here, but I love the way he describes it as like a cultural experience. I feel like that takes the barrier away to having conversations about it. Because, I don't know, to me it's easy to ask questions about someone's culture, but when you label it disability, Hmm. people tighten up and get awkward and like, can I ask this question? Um, So I loved the way he described that and also that he's on both sides of it where he'll get those questions like, oh my gosh, how do you guys drive? Like, does your mom know how to write? But then he'll also be the question asker. Like he talked about how curious he is and how he'll ask other people questions about their experiences. So I just, I like how he's used his own context to, I don't know, be on both sides of those, hmm. those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I like that distinction too. Cause he was like, he said he considers himself more bicultural than bilingual. Yeah. And like, as an outsider, like before hearing this story, I would just assume like, oh, if you know sign language, then you're bilingual and right. it like doesn't come with any sort of like culture surrounding that. Right. But what I think he does here is it helps me understand what that culture is more than just being bilingual it's also like carrying some of those stereotypes from people around you and like kind of having to negotiate that and deal with that and he talks about it being like a sense of like diversity in the home Mm -hmm. because it changed more than just how they communicate it's also like how he communicates externally with people around him so yeah yeah that was interesting to me too absolutely and like also the fact that maybe it's not a burden but that he has to hear all the things that people say about his mom behind her back and like do you tell your mom because she's completely unaware you know so I think that like that dynamic right there is is so tough and I I wish like I could ask him more questions about like what's that like um but yeah I really liked that piece of it too and also if you watch the video on your website he's signing the whole time too which I thought was really awesome that he kind of showed us that bicultural aspect right there. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wonder if the mom doesn't know what people are saying. Right. <laughs> you know, because I feel like uh, just in terms of this idea of communication and who's communicating and how do we communicate, there's a lot that happens that's not verbal, mm-hmm. you know. So I and I think the fact that he says she didn't want to force a difference. Like, I wonder what like how you two are interpreting what he means by that um Mm -hmm. but to me at least gave a sense that she understood that people were judging making assumptions and she wanted to protect her kids in some way from that although um it's interesting because he also talks about there being a deaf culture Mm -hmm. which sounds like something you can get behind and be positive about too so I don't want to assume that she's like um at all like thinking the difference that she's experiencing is negative um later he talks about it as something that she she we could be proud of are these things that make us weak um anyway but what do you all think she meant by that she didn't want to force this difference on on her family right i mean obviously i can't speak to her experience but like with my invisible disabilities, when I talk to my family about it, I don't want them to feel the burden of having to like explain it to other people, hmm. you know? So maybe that's what she meant. Like she didn't want her children to have to constantly be like explaining why their other people's assumptions are wrong and trying to educate them on the reality of being deaf. Um, Cause that, that can feel like a lot, you know, a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I'm like, I'm stuck on the word, like, deaf culture, because, Mm -hmm. like, I, when I think about it, like, in my mind, it's, like, kind of like what you were talking about, Carmen, in which, like, he has to kind of be the interpreter between, like, you know, waiters and whatnot, and so this sort of, like, this, I don't know, situation that he's in that's kind of notable because he's kind of this interpreter for the outside world, even as, like, a young kid, and that gives you, like, a lot of responsibility and whatnot, but... I don't know. So I think like that's when I, that's what I hear when I think like forcing this sort of difference on him, like this role that he has to take because his mom is deaf. But I don't know. It's the culture aspect mm-hmm. here that I'm not 
so sure on like I wonder like that makes a lot of sense to me like this idea of like having to be the sort of like person who answers all the questions and like talk to people about it that makes a lot more sense to me well and I know also like just being from the film world being deaf like you're constantly having to ask please subtitle please Mm -hmm. caption please make your events accessible um like it's just a constant thing because if you're not deaf you don't really think about it you know Mm -hmm. so I've heard um Actually, I don't even know if you have to be in the disability community to be saying this. People who are advocates for accessibility talk about um, disability is not in individuals, it's in the environment, mm-hmm. right? So um, captioning, for example, if we lived in a world where uh, not being able to hear was the norm, like that would be a no-brainer. Right. Um, same thing with like sidewalks and access and the width of a sidewalk. Um, if you are in a, a culture that has a lot more people on wheels mm-hmm. as opposed to on feet, um, then it would be a no-brainer that you would have uh, ramps, you know, mm-hmm. or the width would be uh, wide enough to have like two wheelchairs or two walkers or something like that. So I think that's um, important to remember in this conversation, too, that it's not really about the individuals. It's actually about the environment um, in terms of what makes the disability apparent or a problem. Um, The deaf culture thing, he doesn't I I, I don't know. I did this interview with Liz and I can't remember if I asked him to try to talk more about that, Um, because it would be interesting to know, like, I, I know from my own like limited exposure that there are people in the deaf community, for example, who don't want to have like, um, like implants. There's a lot of like technology that's now changing the uh, ability for people who have been born deaf to actually be able to hear. And there's a conversation within the deaf community about whether that's desirable or not, Mm -hmm. because there is a community and a culture that has grown up out of not having that capacity, um, and there's something precious about it that they don't want to lose. So uh, I, like, I can't speak to all of the features of that culture, but I think um, you know, there, when there's something that you have to rally around with other people because the environment or the community that you're living in can't see it or hasn't experienced it, so doesn't even know like, how to enter through empathy, then all of the ways that you negotiate become a part of a culture that becomes something that you identify with. And so then, like, what would it mean to lose that? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like losing a part of yourself then. Um, So I think that that's a little bit of what deaf culture means. But then it doesn't seem like something that you'd have to worry about forcing. But I don't know if the kids could actually have access to that. Like, you know, there's a certain way in which some culture you can learn about as an as an outsider but you can't if you don't have the uh physiology in this case necessarily experience it from the inside so yeah but I think you know of course moms want to protect their kids and I get a sense that he probably wants to protect his mom too yeah uh you're listening to WVLP this is listen up Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and Willa Walsh, and our guest today, Carmen Vincent. Um, let's talk about communication a little bit more and what you think he means when he says she can communicate well. Like, what sorts of assumptions have people made about communication, and how is he saying this is not a problem, as far as you can tell from the story? I think it's, like, for me, I'm hearing, like, okay, because his mom doesn't communicate like verbally then we like there's you know if like other people don't do sign language then you can't necessarily like know what she's saying I guess so I think there's this sort of like being removed and you know like having to make assumptions outside of it and so I don't know so it's I guess it's just like this aspect of like curiosity that he talks about like just being more curious and asking more questions but I think there he is touching on something that's like well if you don't know how it feels to interact with somebody who's deaf if you don't know sign language then yeah it's going to be pretty darn hard for you to understand like what they're saying or like be able to communicate so I think it's even easier to make those sorts of assumptions on the outside yeah yeah I think 
people mistake being deaf as an intellectual disability mm-hmm. when yeah. really it's absolutely not. Like, it's just a different way to communicate, you know? So I think that distinction right there leads to a lot of negative assumptions and because of the terrible representation in film and media, um, those are, you know, perpetuated. Um, those stereotypes are perpetuated. Uh, so that's what I'm personally trying to do is, like, bring more representation so we can see, you know, more people like this guy's mom um, communicating well and doing well with her disability, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting that there seems to be this assumption that if you can't here you can't learn right mm-hmm. which i know is what you're getting at right yeah. but like when you break it down that way it's like <laughs> like why would you think that yeah i mean there's text there's the ability to read lips there's sign language there's closed captions i mean maybe it says something about how used to we're going we are going into like a classroom that hasn't made accommodations Mm -hmm. so that we start to think like, well, if you can't hear, then you must not be able to get an education. Right. Um, The fact that she has a master's didn't surprise me, Mm -hmm. but the fact that she teaches, I was like, oh, like I caught my own bias with that. I was like, I think I can undo the bias of like, if you're deaf, you can't learn. Okay, I can, you know, I can talk myself out of that one, Mm -hmm. but it does seem like to be a teacher you would need a more normative way of communicating. But of course, I have no idea what kind of classroom it is. I also don't know what it means to have, um, like why couldn't a teacher who's signing have an interpreter Mm -hmm. that's telling the class what she's saying or anyway. So I just, yeah, it's interesting that this connection with a bit like intellectual ability and hearing is so... Uh, it's ingrained yeah yeah we don't even mean to make that assumption but it's just there you know and like what do we do to reverse that yeah Mm -hmm. what do we do what does he say (laughs) what does he say what does he want like ask him questions and I think that's so beautiful because I think people are afraid to ask questions because they're afraid you know to offend you but like he is so excited to talk about his experience with his mom and to talk about how his mom lives like I think it's a shame if people get, you know, caught up in that that uncomfortableness of asking questions because he wants you to. And I think a lot of people with experiences like this want you to. Like, I'm always happy to answer questions about OCD or anxiety. Or, you know, like, I'm happy to answer questions about that. I think when people are uncomfortable asking questions, it almost implies some, like, sense of shame. Like, you should feel ashamed about your experiences because they don't want to bring you know they don't want to like confront you about that that it's this elephant yeah. in the room that they can't address but no it's just a part of who I am like like there's this assumption that you're gonna feel ashamed right and so they don't want to bring up the thing that might make you feel ashamed exactly That's interesting exactly I think it's funny or ironic because it seems like at least from his experience he's saying when he's overhearing these people talking around his family when he's out at a restaurant like that kind of rudeness is like more harmful than any sort of rudeness that comes with actually asking the questions although he says it borders on dangerous like his (laughs) desire his curiosity to know what do you think what do you think he means by that because I think that's another piece of this maybe too I mean, I feel like I can relate to that. Like, my curiosity, I feel like, borders on dangerous just because I'm not afraid to ask those questions, so I will ask them. And sometimes that, like, you know, bring, like puts people off guard or, I don't know. I, I just feel like we haven't quite created the culture that's necessary around having these conversations, like, freely and without any kind of, like, uncomfortableness or hesitation yet. See, I always think of it as, like, sort of, like, this, like, vulnerability aspect. Like, part Mm -hmm. of it is, like, vulnerability. Like, if I'm going to ask questions about somebody's experience that I have no familiarity with, like, I'm going to be vulnerable, and maybe I'm going to ask a question that I feel is dumb. Like, because your mom is deaf, does she have trouble learning? You know, it's, like, it's just, like, like, having those questions. But then I also think about this idea of, like, I think it's so interesting that he's so open about, like, wanting people to ask him questions, because sometimes I think about, like, people who you know I think about like 
I'm trying to think of like an example. Maybe like a black person. So it's just like this idea of like, well, I'm going to ask you all of my questions because you're black. And so I'm going to ask yeah, you all my race yes, questions and yes, I'm going to ask yeah. you all of your political opinions on race. And so you become this sort of like, like visual beacon to people around you. Like, oh, they're the person who I'm supposed right. to ask questions. And so then I also feel like, well, I don't know. And I don't want to burden this person with my questions. And I should be smart enough to go and Google it myself. So I think there's like this like there's this barrier that comes up and it's like it's not even like wanting to be it's like yeah I guess it is wanting to like not be offensive in like different ways totally yeah I mean I heard a quote from like a disability thought leader the other day like I my life is not meant to be your life lesson like yeah that there's this sense that it's not like someone's responsibility to completely educate you entirely about like disability and or race and like the wider implications but I still think there's like nuance to that where you can still ask about their particular experiences. Like that's different than asking like, what do you think about racism in America? Or, you know, like mm-hmm. instead of asking about like, you know, how have you experienced it in your life? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's different. Cause then you're asking them to like extrapolate and make these big like statements about the world. And that's, that's a lot more pressure and a lot, it's asking a lot more than just asking them about what it's like to live life, you know? Yeah, no, for mm-hmm. sure. I think I just have like this idea from I don't know if you've seen it, but Bo Burnham's new yes. special Inside. Oh my gosh! There's just a one line from it where he's like, "Why do you rich white people insist on seeing every socio-political status through the myopic lens of your own self-actualization?" <laughs> yes, and I think about that so often. I know. <laughs> yes, that special is full of genius things like that, but it's so true. Like, but it also does mean, like, if we could, uh, speaking as a, a white person, right? <laughs> like, if I was not trying to see it as my own self-actualization, like, oh, I'm going to be a good white person, so I'm going to go ask this black person to teach me about racism. Mm-hmm. But if it's not about my own self-actualization, if it's about being curious about yeah. how do other people experience life in America or in my campus or in this classroom, mm-hmm. um, and just genuinely wanting to know about the other person, that might be one sort of antidote to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do think we, I, I think he uses the word danger for a reason because you don't always know what space is that other person in. Like if mm. they're, if they just had a really crappy day, yeah. like they might not have the energy to answer personal questions, even if it was out of a genuine curiosity. Right. So, and you know, like, what kind of relationship do you have to this person? If it's an ongoing relationship, that's something different than if it's like you just saw this family sit down next to you at dinner and you're like, wow, the mom is deaf. Let me lean over to the table yeah, and yeah. interrupt <laughs> their meal you're and right. ask them, how do you work? Exactly. <laughs> no, there's totally a difference there. I think it definitely takes like a development of trust. Like you don't just walk in asking those questions, you know. Um, But also, I think if you're going to ask questions like that, you should be willing to talk about your own vulnerabilities. You know, I think it's like a two way street that just because someone has a disability doesn't mean they can't learn from you, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he talks about that, too. Like when he like when he's talking about asking questions, he's talking about it being dangerous. And I think there's this idea of like he's so open to people asking questions that he wants it to like be on the flip side too it's like now I would like you to be super right. open and asking questions totally so I think there's that like expectation of like well if you're going to ask somebody to be vulnerable with you or like share their experience like mm-hmm. I would hope you would turn around and answer their questions when they do the same for you right yeah definitely well this is WVLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso and you're here with Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh Today on Listen Up, we have a guest, uh, Carmen Vincent, who is with us. She's an alum of our own institution, Valparaiso University. She has worked with the Welcome Project, so we consider her alum for us as well. <laughs> and she's a documentarian. Um, tell us again like where people could find your work online if they were interested. Yeah, so I have my own website, CarmenVincent.com, but also if you're interested in checking out the documentary I'm working on, that's TeacherOfPatients.com. Great, and we would certainly encourage you to go and check out Carmen's work. Um, As you will hear in this next story, which Carmen edited for us, uh, 
she is really good at what she does. (laughs) (laughs) And um, both stories today actually are are videos, which um, in this medium you cannot see. Um, But uh, maybe that's something like we can, as we're having parts have as we're having the conversation afterwards if it ever seems relevant to talk about um you know things you remember about uh the storyteller and visually and how Mm -hmm. it was to be with her in person um feel free to to bring that in cool um did you want to say anything by way of introduction willow for this story yeah this one's just titled living with mental illness When people say bad things about you, it's sometimes hard to let them go, especially when you have anxiety and depression. So I was born in Texarkana in Texas, and then when I was two, we moved to Northwest Arkansas, and then when I was 12, we moved back to Texarkana. And so me coming in as a seventh grader, it was difficult to make friends and feel like I belonged. For a long time, I felt like I didn't belong because something was wrong with me. So I really struggled with a lot of insecurities and um, an inferiority complex, feeling like I wasn't good enough, like I always had to prove myself. The school I had gone to in Arkansas, there was a lot of bullying and harsh treatment that I faced and so, When I moved back to Texas, I didn't realize that being mean wasn't how people were supposed to act. And so after that, I started noticing depression and anxiety. I was scared to walk into school alone. I was scared to go to classes alone. I was scared to be the first one at the lunch table. It was really hard because I didn't want to admit that I had these things to deal with and people didn't talk about it. People still don't talk about it. I think depression is more than sadness. It's so much deeper and it's so much harder to fight through. It's something that can keep you from doing things. And it's the same with anxiety. Anxiety is the feeling for me of when your heart rate's beating really fast, but you can't slow it down. You get worked up over these things that people do every day, and it's just little things that people don't understand why you're having trouble with, but it's not something you can control. Sometimes I am personable and I'm open and I'm super extroverted, and then sometimes it feels like there's something sitting on my chest and I just can't speak. Internally, it's like, I've done this before, why can't I do it now? And I just kind of have to be patient with myself because those negative thoughts and comments I'm telling myself are not getting me anywhere. They're just making me more anxious. And so I have to remind myself that this is normal and I can work through it and there are other people who have felt that way. When people say bad things about you, it's sometimes hard to let them go, especially when you have anxiety and depression. So for a really long time, I held on to these ideas that I wasn't worthy and that no one would ever love me. I was undeserving. I was just the worst person ever. I was stupid. I was a whore, just all of these negative things that people had said about me that because of my depression and anxiety, I held on to. When I started going to counseling, I definitely got a lot of comments about how I was unstable or crazy. I just started ignoring it, and the way I think of it is that counseling, getting mental health help, is just like what you would do if you had an ear infection or something was wrong with your leg or you had a broken bone. It's just a kind of medical therapy to help you get better. And I'm very much a person of, you shouldn't be ashamed of anything. And so I talked about it. People acted like these were just temporary emotions that would just go away over time, like a crush or something. I think people fear what they don't understand, which It's frustrating, but at the same time, we have to be empathetic with that. Growing up in a small town, I didn't always understand different cultures and races and the problems that they faced. And when I came to Valpo, that's one of the things I really wanted to learn about. And I think it's the same with mental health. If you don't have those issues, you still need to learn about them because they're still relevant socially. So in today's society, we have this concept of allyship and being an ally. And 
We can be allies in so many different ways to different races and genders and sexualities. People don't think about being allies for mental illness. Like, it's so easy to just say, hey, no, that preconceived notion is wrong. Hey, that's a stereotype. Whether you have a mental disorder or mental illness or not, being an ally is important. We should all be allies to each other for mental health and for everything else. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio on WVLP, and this is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and we're here today with our guest, Carmen Vincent. Uh, this is actually a story that she edited for us at the Welcome Project, so we're super happy to have her here today to have a conversation about it with us. Question, Willow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, okay, I guess maybe the first question is, like, maybe this is, like, twofold. Like, how does she describe her anxiety and depression, and also, like, where did she first notice it coming up? Right. Yeah, I mean trouble with editing is you always have to cut things out right (laughs) like I know just by knowing the storyteller and also experiencing depression anxiety that there's so much more to it than the you know what 60 seconds she can get to describe it but I really appreciate just how transparent she is about like what it's like to experience depression and anxiety the physical the mental symptoms of it and I mean I, I really love that she's so transparent about how it came about, that she was bullied and felt out of place. I think so many people can relate to that. Um, so that, yeah. Yeah. I like when she talks about, like, it's more, like, depression is more than sadness. Like, yeah. I knew before I experienced it that, like, I was, <laughs> like, I felt that way. I'm like, just stop being sad. Like, this is you. This is on you. Right. But, right. I mean, this is when I was, like, younger. But, you know, it's like once you experience it, you're like, oh. Oh, and like, you know, it's like panic attacks. It's like, well, just stop panicking. It's that easy. It's like, oh, if it were only that easy. (laughs) Right. That's why, yeah. That's why I really like how she likens it to having like a broken leg or something. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a chemical imbalance in your brain, and you can't just like flip that switch yourself. You know, there's no amount of like meditation or positive affirmations or things you can say to yourself that will fix that chemical imbalance, you know, like, like that, you know. It takes a lot of work. Um, so I really appreciate how she kind of debunked, debunked that stereotype, too. Yeah, I feel like in general, we are uneducated about emotions yeah. and how emotions, like we tend, or I should speak for myself, I think I used to think that they, like as a feeling, they're just some sort of like ether in the air or something like that. But they're actually in our bodies. Yeah. Like our bodies produce them. Right. It's it's physiological reaction that's happening and so even if it's even if it is a emotion that will have a a minute you know before it passes uh so it's a very temporary thing like you can only do so much in that time like you're really just waiting like her term she uses she uses the word patience later which she's not just talking about waiting through like a 10 minute spell she's Mm -hmm. actually thinking about a longer term patience she has to have with herself but but I do feel like if we had a better understanding of emotions generally and how actually embodied they are it might start to help us extend that to um, something that's more conditional like like a right. deep depression can be as opposed to sadness which I typically think of as more like the passing emotion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right and and also like normalizing depression and anxiety like we're supposed to feel those things as human beings Mm -hmm. at some points in our lives and I think a lot of people feel like guilty for being depressed or they feel bad about themselves or other people are like oh my god we got to fix this right away because this is awful but it's part of the human experience like it it doesn't feel great going through it but it's something you shouldn't like I don't know try to constantly avoid or constantly cure you know I feel like it's hard too because it's like it's I feel like in media it's so often like trivialized like I think of like 
like in the Sopranos, like the main thing is like Tony Soprano goes to, you know, see his therapist all the time and he can't tell anybody else in the family and you know, everybody calls her the shrink and whatnot. So it's like we right. get these sort of like, like emotions aren't like a broken leg, you know, a broken leg is more serious. And the notion is that like, well, you know, our emotions are again, like out here in the ether and they're like this like frou-frou thing that we right. can't really control and it's not as serious. So I think that's what makes it hard too, because it's like, I mean, I just told my dad like last month, I was like, yeah, I'm like in therapy. I'm like, I've been going to therapy. And he's like, does that help? And I'm like, what do you mean? Does it help? <laughs> of course it helps. You should be in therapy. Like, I think <laughs> everyone should be in therapy. Yeah, but oh, that's I a different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, I mean, if you're out in 110 degree weather, you can't stop your body from sweating. Yeah. So when you're going through something in life, like you shouldn't be trying to stop yourself from going through these ups and downs, you know? Like, let it happen. Let it be part of your experience. Have a support system around you to help you get through that. But it's nothing to be ashamed about, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. She doesn't actually talk about this, the storyteller. Um, but I know I've I've heard other people, like, with, like, a diagnosis, say, of bipolar, bipolar mm-hmm. disorder, talk about not wanting to take medication because they feel like it's going to change. Like, it means that they're not capable themselves of being themselves right like so medication can only be seen as you're not doing enough for yourself as opposed to the thing that could actually help you be more able to fully be yourself so i I think this idea of like control and Mm -hmm. how we're supposed to be able to manage our lives is a big part of why mental illness is such a hard thing for us to put into a a more normalized category of like okay I have diabetes or okay I broke my leg Mm -hmm. or you know so there's something about the emotional mental world we're supposed to be able to keep it together yeah and do it on our own right yeah it's funny when you say that it reminded me I I have like a few filmmaker friends who love their depression because they think that helps them create their work, Mm. you know, like, and okay, that makes sense because you were talking about Bo Burnham's special, like he was very clearly depressed and that's what prompted Mm -hmm. this genius Mm -hmm. special, like, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, like, it's okay to feel these things and also to like create things out of it, I don't know. But then there's also, like, you can't be depressed forever because what quality of life is that? It's just, it's a really hard dynamic to balance. Yeah. Yeah. But. I mean, I think the thing that, like, for me helps, and I think the storyteller talks a little bit about this, too, because she says she's, like, not the type of person to, like, hide what she's going through that she wants to talk about it. It's, like, something that's really helped for me is, like, I mean, like, I go on YouTube or TikTok or watch, Mm -hmm. like, the Netflix special, Mm -hmm. and it's, like, to, like, see people in that shared experience, it's just, like, oh, my gosh. Like, there are so many other people, like, going through this. Like, I am not the only crazy person, like, on the outside of the grocery store who's, like, freaking out about going in. Right. Or, like, when, it, like, you go to the gas station, it says, like, see cashier. It's like, nope, I'm out. I'm not I'm not doing that today. But it's like, this is a shared thing. Other people feel this. Right. I don't know. It just feels so nice. It's like, it sucks, but at least there are, like, other people out there feeling that, too. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good community builder. Mm. Like, struggle is a really good community builder, <laughs> whether that's good or bad. But, like when everyone's happy and things are great all the time how are you are you actually connecting you know but when Mm -hmm. you talk about like those vulnerable dark days and someone relates to that like that's a tethered relationship there Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah I was struck by one of the things that seems the hardest um is that you start to believe things that people say about you yeah um so that's like a totally different feature of this experience. So like, you know, when art, your, your fellow artists are talking about depression as a source of creativity, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's one sort of maybe like window that depression makes possible. But this one seems a lot more like something I would want to, 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 to respond to in myself, yeah. right? Because like, you don't want to believe you're undeserving. You're the worst person ever. You're stupid. You know, and like the fact that the physiological chemistry of your brain is making it really hard to um, 
to separate yourself from believing those thoughts that feels like a really painful part of this experience that I just would never you know want anybody to have to go through right yeah and I think that particular experience is made so much worse by this like social media culture we have where it really does feel like everyone's thoughts and opinions matter you know Mm. so it's hard to just like wave it off and say I don't care what people think because we kind of have to, you know, like, or at least our generation, it's like the likes you get, the comments you get, it's like stuff like that. And so it's really hard to separate. Like which external voices, affirmative or non-affirming, yeah. do you actually choose to listen to? Or, right. Or if you're letting them all in, then you can't easily select which ones exactly. are, are real. Right. Yeah. I mean, back to like the filmmaker friends I have like they will get a hundred comments on one of their films and only listen to the two negative ones there were 98 positive (laughs) ones but those two will nag at them for the rest of their lives you know it's like what in us makes us focus on that you know yeah I don't know the full story of it but like some of my uh, Buddhist teachers talk about the negativity bias that's uh, evolutionary like it's Mm. supposed to have been a way for us to pay attention to uh, what puts us in danger and give it more prominence Mm -hmm. so that we can be more uh, protective like we can make sure that we don't enter those situations in the future Um, sometimes I I don't know how I feel about like all all of these things going back to like they served some sort of evolutionary purpose at one point in time I'm like Okay, maybe, but usually that what goes along with that is some sense of um, like it's not serving us in the way that it used to. So yeah, it's time to like learn and develop new ways of being so that we don't always listen to those two negative yeah. as opposed to the ninety-eight positive. Right, and like this storyteller does a second video where she talks about her identity, but also like how she has these five affirmations that she says to herself every single night before she goes to bed. And that's to counter these thoughts that she, you know, the negative thoughts that she's the worst person ever, she's stupid, you know, because, like, I don't, I'm not a brain scientist, but I know, like, you can train yourself to start believing things like that just because you're saying it to yourself so much, Um, or at least that's what I've heard. Jury's still out on whether I can do it, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I think there's something too about like anxiety and this like idea that it's just like, like I don't know. For me, it's just like it's like rapid thoughts. Yeah. So it's like if you, so it's like if you have something like negative or multiple negative aspects, it's just like so it's like I feel like anxiety makes it even worse because it's like okay, you can have these negative things and kind of think about them, but if you have anxiety, it's just like. It is just, right. like, going over and over, and it's right. just, like, a rabbit hole of just, like, terrible things about yourself. <laughs> totally. And the problem is, when you get a compliment, then you're like, crap, now I have to live up to that forever now. <laughs> like, that's another thing anxiety does. So, like, you can't enjoy anything, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you do, like, one awkward thing or, like, say a weird thing. I've done this with both of you. I've had conversations with both of you to where I'm, like, oh my god why did I see that oh god, and I, I do think that about too. it and it just like plays over and over and over in my head. I promise you've never said anything weird to me <laughs> but no I, I totally get that like and it also stems from like this assumption that like people are thinking about us which I've had therapists tell me like oh yeah mm-hmm. no one's thinking about oh, yeah. you mm-hmm. no one gives a crap what you know what's going on with you mm-hmm. they're thinking about themselves mm-hmm. so like you walk away from a conversation with me like obsessing about something you said and I walk away obsessing about something I said neither of us are thinking about what the other person said <laughs> so I don't know it's like this this thing like we've been trained to like like our voice I don't know I don't know what I'm about to say <laughs> yeah it's about ego right, right. And so we always and I, I know that sometimes we use that in a negative sense but the way I mean it here is like we actually experience ourselves as the center of the world right I mean that's what ego is and so it's like oh like when I'm not in the room people aren't still thinking about me and everything that I just said like (laughs) no they're not (laughs) yeah and so that's that's one of those like affirmation type things where you just have to remind yourself that people are not thinking about you like um 
yeah, that's just something where I have to be my own best friend and try to remind myself that sometimes. You're listening to WVLP LP 103.1 FM, and this is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh on Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with our guest today, Carmen Vincent. And um, I just paused because I thought I swapped your first and last name, but I didn't. I got it right. <laughs> I mean, you could be Vincent Carmen. I could be. It could work. Yeah. Um, and we are playing the second half of our show today. We just listened to a story that she edited for the Welcome Project, Living with Mental Illness. I wonder, you know, we've been kind of thinking about how we get stuck. Um, what role do you think the storyteller says that allies play like um because some of this stuff we have to undo on our own if we have anxiety or well I shouldn't say on our own what I mean is like we have to take the steps to like work with a therapist or find medication or you know do the mantras that try to reset like our understanding of ourselves um but this storyteller also brings up allies and so I wonder either based on what she says in the story or your own thinking about this, what role do you think allies can play on the behalf of someone who is experiencing anxiety or depression? Yeah, I, my thought, maybe this is just because of the stage of life I'm in, it immediately goes to employers that we need employers to start being allies because there are days where people with anxiety or depression just can't function in the way they want to function to complete that job how they should be and it's not acceptable to be like hey I'm having a rough day with my depression today you have to make up an excuse like oh my god family emergency can't come into work Mm -hmm. like I can't tell you how many times I've had to do that like and and it feels awful because you know you're lying but if you told them the truth what would they think about you yeah and and also disclosing on job applications if you have a disability and anxiety and depression is included in that disability group you're afraid to disclose because then you're worried about all the stereotypes that are attached to that people will think you're not a good worker or that you're going to be high strung or you know so it's I think if employers could be more educated about and accepting of mental illness and intellectual disabilities and stuff like that like we would have a much healthier community for sure yeah no I love that like this idea of like I like that she opens it up to like allies like like we can already be an ally to different races and genders and sexualities and religions it's just like we can do that and like the mental health space too it's similar to like the idea of like the broken leg versus like depression it's Mm -hmm. just like this is just part of the work of like equating the both of them it's just like this is a heavy thing we're carrying right and this is still like a like a shared experience this is a lived experience and like to also ask questions so you can understand more and then also to be an ally and I love I love what she says when she's like when she's kind of describing what it means for her like for somebody to speak up and say like no that preconceived notion is wrong or hey that's a stereotype and like I think that's like a really good example of like being a really good ally because you're sticking up for people with mental health issues which I love that that's yeah yeah. like that third party perspective can be really helpful because if you're the person with the mental illness or disability sticking up for yourself like some people might just not take you seriously like they Mm -hmm. might see it as defensive or I, I don't know but like having that ally come in and back you up like it just makes it makes your I don't know it makes it stronger you know mm-hmm. and especially with like anxiety and depression too yeah. it's like if you are going to tell an employer like hey this is what's up with me today right. and it's just like well you have anxiety and depression so likely you're going to go home and you're going to think about that interaction seven exactly. times and it's just like if another third party could just come in and like validate like the extent of how you're feeling mm-hmm. like that is just like uh, that's just everything you need to like be like yes this is a real thing I don't need to feel bad for feeling this thing and expressing that it's debilitating in this moment right yeah I think uh, it would just be so nice to have those type of allies out there right (laughs) actually also makes me think that some of like that work should be done ahead of time right so that like um an employer a manager could have worked with all of their employees to say like regardless of whether they have a like a um a um 
shoot, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, when you get an accommodation for like a disability that you have that's recognized, you know, like, right. yeah, that's mm-hmm. accommodation. Um, yeah. or, but I guess what I'm thinking is like some, some of your employer employees who don't have like an actual diagnosis, I guess that's the word sure. I was looking for. That doesn't mean that you won't have like a period in your life, like say, uh, you lose a parent or right. you go through a divorce right. and like anxiety kicks in even though you maybe don't have an anxiety disorder yep. like if you've worked with all of your employees to say ahead of time like if you're experiencing x y or z like here's some things that we know we could do to accommodate you what are some things that you know that might work for you and i i wonder if the pandemic will have aided this at all like because I feel like because everybody was so afraid well maybe not everybody a lot of us were afraid um, of the public health size of this Mm -hmm. that employers were immediately like okay if you have these symptoms don't come to work (laughs) but you still have to do the work so we started to figure out ways in the workplace of accommodating that okay so now you're going to be quarantined for 14 days how are you going to do your work in the meantime like why can't we extend that to somebody who is in a depressive episode okay so and if we've talked about it ahead of time then it doesn't have to become something that the person has to advocate for in the very moment that it's happening yeah definitely I think that's great and also like going back to the storyteller how people What's the word I'm looking for? They invalidate her experiences and say, mm-hmm. this is just a phase, like a crush. Um, I think it's so easy to undermine anxiety and depression because it is like an internal experience. And there's no like mm. blood test you can take to be like, yes, you have this. You know, so mm-hmm. I think people are afraid of people abusing that yeah. as an excuse. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but... But then you have to like weigh the pros and cons. Like, maybe it's okay that a few people abuse that, so that the people who actually right. suffer with it can, you know, have what they need. You know. Yeah, because like the experience of anxiety is so like, I feel like it's so widespread. Like, if you're gonna go up and like do a public speaking thing, like, yeah, a lot of people are gonna have anxiety about that. Sure. And if that's their only experience of that, you know, it's just like, well, I got over that, so you can get over that. Right. But also, I think there's, like, an aspect to this of, like, when we're talking about employers, like, in terms of, like, taking mental health seriously. I also think it's, like, this is, like, a little bit of, like, a, like, a socioeconomic divide, too, Mm because I think the way we were talking about it, it's, like, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, like, nine to five jobs, like, you know, something that you can, like, take time away from. Like, my partner is, like, a manager at Starbucks, and so a lot of her employees, like, have this issue, but it's, like, of course, she'd be, like, if somebody came up to her and was, like, I'm having a terrible day, like, she often lets them go home, but she gets so much heat on top of her like from her boss be like well you know your times are really bad this day or your sales are really bad this day mm-hmm. and so it's just like it's so much easier I think if you are in like an office position or like a nine-to-five mm-hmm. position to be able to take that time but you know for like somebody who's working like yeah. an hourly job yeah. it's like well you have to have somebody come in for you and you yeah. have to call all these people and like right and so it becomes like so I think there it also stacks in, against you in that way too because it can be harder depending on your employer oh yeah yeah, I feel like that's another like frontline worker experience that's highlighted by the pandemic. Like there are different expectations and needs for certain kinds of workplaces and too often we're basing our models on like an office environment, like yeah. a 9 to 5 job mm-hmm. like you said. So we do need to actually think about how do you support like I mean that's really hard for your partner then who either has to do it on her own or scramble to find somebody to bring in. So how do you work ahead of time to try to manage that so it's less stressful for mm-hmm. Erica as well? Yeah. yeah. But like those are the, exactly the conversations that upper level management should be having. Oh, yeah. Because like exactly yeah. what we're talking about now. Yeah, it's a problem to solve, but they're not even thinking about it. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, she can solve it. She's like, well, I'll just right. put two extra people on the schedule every exactly. day. That way somebody can go home. It's like, well, no, 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 no. You can't schedule that many people. <laughs> That's too much money. What if everyone shows up? Oh, money. <laughs> money, money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it for today. Um, thanks for listening. 
And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Center, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com and at 108 East Lincoln Way in Valparaiso because they are open. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And if you'd like to hear more stories like the ones you heard today, you can find them on our website at welcomeproject.valpo.edu. And Carmen, tell us one more time how we can access your stuff. Absolutely. You can see a portfolio of my work at carmenvincent.com, but also check out the documentary I'm working on at teacherpatients.com. Thanks so much for being with us today, Carmen. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me.